Good morning, IBCD. Um, my name is Ngewi Fett, for those who don't know me. Um, either those who are here for their first time or just started coming recently or you're joining us on the live stream. Good morning to you. God bless you all. Um, yeah, as I said, my name is Ngewi. I'm not the pastor here. I'm not Pastor Jeff, but uh, I'm one of the elders at the church. And our pastor is currently on holiday at the moment in the United States. And so if you're watching, Jeff, have a good time. Um, yeah, and today I'm going to be bringing the Word of God to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this morning and for your Word. Thank you for your people and your church, which we are privileged to be part of. Pray, O oh God, that today as your Word goes out, may it not return void. Father, I pray that you take the offering we have, our service, whatever little we can give and use it for your glory. Pray, O oh God, that may you increase while I decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. So for more than a year now, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. And um, um, Tech Tim, can I have the... Can I have the clicker? So, uh, we've been going through the book of Matthew. And, but today we are going to be staying anchored in the book of Matthew. But rather than going continuing the series, we are going to be examining some specific themes in more detail. And the themes I'd like us to talk about are judgment, mercy, and forgiveness. I find these themes intriguing because in the Gospels, in Matthew as well as in the other ones, we are told that we only get as much as we give of judgment, of mercy, and forgiveness. And this is in contrast to like, you know, something like love, which we know God's love extended to us while we were still sinners, when our hearts were darkened, when we were blind, when we didn't even know God. He called us, he quickened us, and made us aware of his love. But on these three, we are told over and over again that we only get as much as we give. In judgment, we are told, by the same standard with which you judge, we shall be judged. On mercy, we are told the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. And this servant basically went and begged his master, and his master was merciful to him and forgave him his debt. And he went out and couldn't extend the same mercy to another one. Therefore, the mercy was revoked, which was extended to him. And the Bible tells us in Matthew 5, 7, in the Beatitudes, that blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And in James, that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful, because mercy triumphs over judgment. On forgiveness, we are told in Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And for me, it's always, I find these three things very astounding because it's said in very plain language. There's no meaning of words. There's no, you know, trying to interpret what was meant here. If you would for, you get forgiveness as your heavenly Father, uh, as you, from your heavenly Father as you forgive others. But oftentimes I find we act as if these conditions don't apply to us. Uh, I, don't, I feel, at least in my life, sometimes the way we behave, it's the reality of this simple and very plain condition. It doesn't really affect our behavior in the way we extend forgiveness, in the way we extend mercy. It's as if we forgot the part that God said 
if you don't forgive, I won't forgive you. If you're not merciful, no mercy comes to you. And so today I wanted to look a bit closer at these three things. And today we'll be starting with judgment, and over the next two weeks we'll be looking at mercy and forgiveness in turn. Now what is judgment? The Cambridge Dictionary defines judgment as the ability to form valuable opinions and make good decisions, or a decision or opinion about someone or something that you form after thinking carefully. By these definitions, I think we can all agree that we are constantly making judgments about things and people in our lives. Um, in the Bible, however, judgment deals a lot with the judgment of sin. And I want to consider those two aspects today. One is God's judgment of us, God's judgment of sin. And the second is our judgment of others, how we extend that to others in our lives. Sin is anything, a thought or an action that is contrary to the law and the will of God. God is perfect, and anything that falls short of that standard of perfection is sin. And now you might be thinking, yeah, who can stand? And you're right. Your sin, my sin, has all fallen short of God's standard of perfection. And God's judgment of sin is clear. The Bible tells us very clearly, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. From the beginning, God's judgment on sin has been pronounced very clearly. It leads to death. Now from the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, the sin brought in death, it brought spiritual separation from God. And that consequence is unequivocal in the Bible. It doesn't matter how good a person you think you are, how much you think you do everything right. It doesn't matter if you think your sin didn't harm anybody. It was just in your mind. God has pronounced judgment on that sin. And the judgment is death. I find often that we struggle in reconciling a loving God with one who is also perfectly just. You know, today most people choose to think of God Either people who are Christians or people who are just holding on to some form of religion, like I believe in a higher power or something like that. And we like to think of God as, you know, God of love, mercy, gentleness, forgiveness. Tolerance is the word of the day. But God must also always be seen in light of his righteousness, that standard who he is, of who he is. And God is true to himself. God must also be seen in light of his wrath towards sin and his judgment of that sin. In fact, it's not possible to have one set of qualities without the other. Mercy demands and implies judgment. It means there is something to be merciful for. And in order to have mercy, it's because there was judgment. And forgiveness comes also then as a result of that mercy being extended undeserved favor. We like to reconstruct God around you know, modern ideas of tolerance and all-embracing love. A love that makes no demands. And that's what is called as unconditional love today. But you don't need to look far than your own life to realize that true love 
True love always makes demands. Not selfish demands, but true love makes demands of the other. If you are a parent, you make demands of your kid's behavior, of their speech, because you want what is best for them. Yes, a kid yourself, you were corrected, you were disciplined. At work, if you have people you are mentoring, you make demands of them, of their performance, because they need to grow. And so what we often hear today as, you know, just love is actually kind of just be nice. It's not really love, even though it's branded as such. And I think it's the same way with God. God accepts us as we are. God loved us even before we loved him. But God makes demands of us. We cannot stay as we are. We are accepted as we are. Come as you are. You don't need to get your act cleaned up first. But when you come to God, God demands of us that we start a journey of sanctification, that we grow in grace, in knowledge, in faith, in forgiveness, in mercy. These demands are not selfish, but they are for our own good. Just as any parent would demand the same of their children because you want what is best for them. When it is hard to bear, when they are screaming in pain because of your discipline, you bear it because you know that you want what is best for them. And sometimes you hear people say, don't judge me. Only God will judge me, right? Leave me as I am. And whenever I hear that, for me, it's, this verse comes to mind. That's Hebrews 10, 31, because it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I always wonder, do you really know what you're saying? Like when someone says that, like, don't judge me, don't correct me, leave me to God. It's like, mm, think about that. The Old Testament is sometimes a difficult read, especially from our perspective of a couple of thousand years later. Because sometimes we forget the context in which the Bible was written or the context in which God was dealing with the people. And so it makes it sometimes difficult to read because you get the impression that God was harsh with the people, right? Um, you read some stories in the Bible. I don't know about you, but for me, for sure, it's like, wow, you know, that, that one was tough. And First Chronicles 13, which we heard in our Old Testament reading today, is one of those passages for me that for many years has struck a chord with me, a chord of compassion. And let's read it again. And the setting for this is David basically had just become king. You know, Saul had been killed in battle. And David, after many years of being in the desert, wandering around, finally settles in. The people gather to him in Hebron and pronounce him king, right? He's become king of all Israel. And David is like, okay, good. Let's establish, you know, in Israel. Let's establish our nation. Let's grow towards God. And so David thinks, well, the Ark of the Covenant has not been, you know, in Israel for a long time. Under Saul, we never consulted with God by the Ark of the Covenant. And so David together with the people, decide that it's time to move that up to Jerusalem, to move the ark from, I think it was in the Philistine territory even, um, back to Jerusalem. And so from verse 7, we are told, um, they moved the ark, um, let me see, well, I can start. So David assembled all Israel from the Sheol River in Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath Jerim. David and all Israel went to Bala, son of Judah, Kiriath Jerim, to bring up from there the ark of God, the ark of God, the Lord, who is enthroned between the cherubim, the ark that is called by the name. They moved the ark of God from Abinadab's house on a new cart, with Uzzah and Ahio guiding it. 
David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps and lyres and timbers and cymbals and trumpets. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. So he died there before God. Then David was angry because God's, the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Peres Uzzah. David was afraid of God that day and asked, How can I ever bring the ark of God to me? He did not take the ark to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house for three months. And the Lord blessed his household and everything he had. And when I picture this scene, I always imagine, you know, David after freshly becoming king, feeling very royal, you know, gathering with the people and they go out, let's bring the ark of God. And it was not in the Philistine territory, as to say it was Kiriath Jerim. And they are celebrating with the instruments, the musicians are playing, you know, the priests are there, the Levites, the whole assembly. I imagine a big festival, festival going on, you know. A procession along the road. And if you've ever taken part in any of those, you know it's just the roof euphoria. It's exciting. You're part of it. Everybody's having a good time and celebrating before God. And then the ark stumbled, right? It's not like Uzzah meant to be disobedient and just touch the ark because the Israelites know that God had given strict instructions. This ark is not to be touched. And so, yeah, I imagine myself in his place walking beside the ark, and the oxen stumble, and the ark is slipping to fall. It's like, oh my God, the ark of God is falling, right? You catch it, like you would catch a falling plate or anything. But God had said, do not touch it. And so he was struck dead that very moment. Whew, I don't know about you, but when I read that, I'm always like, poor Uzzah. You know, it's, I can totally see myself in his shoes. But this story at the same time always reminds me that God is not to be trifled with. God is not a genie in the bottle that we summon. God is the holy God. He's our brother. He's our friend. He's our father. We call him Abba. But he's also the creator of the universe. He's also our judge. He's also our master. And we must never forget that. God's standard of holiness Is not to be broken. And he will not lower it for any reason. Sometimes we read and think, oh, well, that's Old Testament God, right? Like in Jesus, it's more about loving your enemies and, you know, being forbearing with one another. But Jesus tells us that he and the Father are one. The very character and nature of God we see in the Old Testament is the same in the New Testament. It's the same we see in Jesus. And to be sure, when you read the Old Testament, you find a lot of God's compassion. And for me, that was a rediscovery as well. When you go to look for it, because this, stories like this one, like the one with Uzzah, tend to stand out in, a, in my mind at least. But when you go through the Old Testament as well, you see God's compassion. You see God constantly forgiving the people. You see God going after them. You see God rescuing them. You see God constantly showing the compassion and love that we see in the New Testament. And for me, that reinforces in my mind, what Jesus said, that he and the Father are one. God is the same. It doesn't change with time. And, of, 
Acts chapter 5, which we heard in our New Testament reading, we see a similar thing happen. Just in this case, they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Unlike in Uzzah's case, where I always think, yeah. Ananias and Sapphira lied before Peter, lied before the assembly, and they were struck dead immediately. And the Bible tells us that a great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And so people knew that this new thing, this thing that was Christianity, that was growing in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, was not like the other gods they had known or the pagan gods and the ten pagan temples that they had around. God was not to be trifled with. What is your relationship to God like? Do you think about God's judgment of your sin? Do you even have a relationship with God? If you have never considered this in depth or reflected on it for your own life, then I urge you to do so. Think about it. God's judgment of sin is clear because the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God, out of his love and compassion towards us, has provided a way for his judgment, for his wrath to be, for the payment to be fulfilled for our sin. And that was provided in Christ Jesus on the cross. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not, judgment is coming. The life we have is a gift of God, and we are going to answer for it, for what we do with it. And so my question to you is, have you sought refuge in Christ? Have you trusted in the work of salvation? Have you given your life to God so that we can escape that judgment for our sin and claim class sacrifice as atonement for our sins? Maybe you already know Christ, but familiarity has bred content, right? It's like, you know, when you've grown in the church, you've been in the church for long, and then you think, yeah, we've been doing this thing for a long time. And so your faith is no longer alive to you. As the Bible says, you hold a form of religion, but you deny the power of it. You want to come to church, maybe you even serve. You greet people, feel good, have a good time. Church becomes like a club to you. And you go back home, and your life is not changed. Your life is not transformed. The word of God does not challenge you. You're not in the process of sanctification. And I urge you to rethink your life. Because the Bible tells us that God is not false. And we think he might be slow in bringing judgment, but it's just because he is patient with us, not wanting anyone to perish. And so reflect on your life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 7 that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? And in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Where do you stand before God today? Have you trusted him with your life? And if you have, how are you living? True love makes demands. And God's demand of us 
is that we constantly walk before him to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk before God. Now, I'd like us to look at human judgment. And this is often spoken about, or like most often quoted from Matthew 7. Uh, it's one of those passages which is very famous, even with people who aren't Christians. In Matthew 7, we are told, Do not judge, or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Now, this passage is often misinterpreted to mean that we should not form any opinions about the sin of others. In secular circles, this, is, this often comes from a desire to live with no accountability. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what gives me pleasure. It's a form of hedonism, which says that pleasure is the goal of existence. As long as you feel good, live the good life, then you've made it. And in Christian circles, we often use this passage to abuse it, actually, to reject correction, to not want to have any accountability or any, have anyone speak to our lives. And sometimes, oftentimes, this is the reason why people won't join churches as members, because of the commitment that that is, and that you know that you are joining a family of God and you're going to be accountable, and people are going to hold you accountable, so you prefer to be on the fringes, like, eh, I'm just going to do my thing and let God judge me. It's very actually unbiblical when we say, don't judge me. In 1 Peter 4.17, we are told, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if we recall the definition of judgment that we saw in the beginning, it said it's a decision or opinion about someone or something that you form after thinking carefully. When we look at that, clearly, we can all agree that we are constantly making judgments of things and people, situations, of Bible teachings. As Christians, we are called to be discerning in the times we live in. We are called to test the spirits. And so that begs the question, if we are constantly making judgments, what does it mean when Jesus says, do not judge or you will be judged? How do we reconcile those two things? And I'd like us to examine that by looking at the what, the how, and the why of judgment. I'll start with the what. First, it is not judgment to be discerning about someone's character or to be discerning about a Bible teaching. Now, we live in an age where there's a lot of information, right? You turn on YouTube or whatever podcast app you have, and there's someone teaching the Word of God somewhere. And there are many false teachers among them. And so we are supposed to test the spirits. We are supposed to listen to the Word of God and check the Scriptures if what is said is true. We are called to form judgments about those things. 
It is not judgment to confront someone lovingly and with humility about sin or about a lifestyle. Matthew 18 clearly implores us to do that, tells us to do this, and outlines the way to do it in a way that is protective of everyone involved and in a way that leads to growth, not destruction. So what kind of judgment are we to avoid when we are told, do not judge? And to do that, I'd like us to take a look at John chapter 8, from verses 3 to 11. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, all who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. It's clear from reading this passage to me that the Pharisees did not care about this woman one bit. She was brought and made to stand in front of the people to humiliate her. She was a means to an end. They were trying to trap Jesus. We are judging people when we assume in pride that we know all the facts. We are judging people when we criticize them out of jealousy and bitterness or gossip about them. In this story, the Pharisees just wanted to trap Jesus. So they bring the woman and say, we call this woman in adultery, pronounce a judgment so that we can use your words against you. And Jesus says, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. We are judging people when we fail to evaluate our own selves before we talk to people about their issues, before we talk to people about their own sin, when we do not come in humility. We are judging people when we evaluate them by human standards instead of God's standards. And that's why we need to study the Word of God to be aware of those standards because there's many things in the world today that I find myself sometimes accepting before you have to reflect and say, wait, this thing sounds... Sounds biblical, but it is not. This thing sounds almost right. It sounds true, but when you dig deeper, it is not. And so we must be students of the Word of God. We must understand what God expects of us. Obedience, not sacrifice. And when we do that, we can apply that word to our lives. As the Bible says, as Jesus said in Matthew 7, like, do not say, let me take out the dust in your eye when there's a speck in your own eye. Jesus did not ignore the sin. Jesus told the woman, go now 
and live your life of sin. But before that, he says, neither do I condemn you. We are judging people when we condemn them, when we make eternal pronouncements about their eternal fate. Without having all the facts, and often with an agenda other than trying to bring about correction and healing and restoration in their lives. Next thing I'd like us to look at is the how. So that is the what. What is judgment and what is not. And the how, we are told over and over in Scripture, is to be done with gentleness and love. We must judge sinful behavior. In fact, we are often doing that, even without realizing it. But we need to be careful to do it in a spirit of humility, not in a spirit of condemnation must be done in the same spirit that God had towards us, the same attitude of trying to restore us to himself. That is the same way in which we will judge sin in other people's lives. So, oh yeah. We have that. And in Galatians 6, verse 1 to 5, we are told, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to anyone else. For each one should carry their own load. It is often hardest to confront others about sin in areas where we struggle ourselves. We say, who am I, right? I, I also struggle with that, so I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let that go. And con in the opposite direction as well, we judge really harshly when it's something we don't struggle with. It's like, how could you, right? And both attitudes I find are wrong. Because even when we struggle with something, as long as we are constantly before God, putting it before God, and walking, being in that process of sanctification, then we are in the right place to talk to others about that. Because you can do it with compassion. Because you understand their struggle. In the same way that the Bible tells us that we don't have a high priest who cannot understand what it is like to be tempted. Because Jesus was a man and was tempted the same way. In the same way, when we struggle with something, that should not make you to shut up to say, no, I'm not going to talk about this. Rather, it puts you in the rather unique position to be able to talk about it because you can talk about it with compassion. Not to excuse it, not to say because I'm in it as well, it's okay, or to minimize it, but to realize, to say, join me, my brother, my sister. Let's fight this together. And the same way, when it's something you don't struggle with, watch yourself. Watch yourself, because each one is carrying their own burdens. There are other areas you struggle with. And so don't judge another person or condemn them, because it's not an area that you struggle with. But bring about correction, confront them in love and humility. When we can identify with people's struggles, we are able to help them the most. I find that God works most through our weaknesses. When we are weak, then his grace shines even more. And we can say, 
God, help me out of this thing. God has delivered me from it. And he can do the same for you. And that is the witness we are to bear. I was a sinner and Christ saved me. And he can do the same for you. That is what it means to be witnesses. That's what it means. We are witnesses to what God has done in our lives. And so you can tell another person that and give them hope. That is the how. With gentleness, with compassion. Seeking to restore, seeking to encourage. Never self-seeking. Never seeking to feel better about your own self by condemning another person. But also not ignoring it or minimizing the sin. Because we know God's judgment for sin is death. So we don't turn a blind eye. Because when we do that, we are actually being very unloving. And now to the why. Why should we do it? Because we are commanded to. In Matthew 18, the Bible says, If your brother or sister sins, go out and point their fault. Just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The command is clear. If someone sins, we are to go to them and point out their fault. A few weeks ago at IBCD, we had to take a vote to revoke the membership of one of our members due to lifestyle choices which were contrary to the word of God and to the membership covenant of IBCD. And this was not comfortable for many of us, even in the leadership. It's something we had to pray about and think about because it makes us, you know, all starting to self-reflect and people questioning, what does this mean for me? Does it mean that I also get kicked out because there's this thing that I know that I do that nobody else, is, that nobody else knows? It was an uncomfortable process that we walked through. And as Jeff explained back then, it was about a lifestyle of sin. It's about a conscious choice to keep pursuing a path which is contrary to the word of God. For me, it was the first time having to be part of such a process in 27 plus years of being a Christian. And so, yeah, it was something new. But that is what we are called to do. We did it because it is what the Bible expects of us. The Bible tells us in Ezekiel 33 that we are watchmen. And when God tells the watchman or watchwoman to say to someone, you are sinning and you don't do it, then you are held accountable for that person's sin. But when you do warn the person who is in sin and they don't turn, then you have saved yourself. The responsibility no longer lies with you. And so we are commanded to do it. It is an expression of love when you can go to someone and say, listen, this thing, this path you run, it's not the right path. Do you ignore sin? in those around you, in the family of faith, in your church? You will be called many things in the world today. You will be called intolerant. You will be told to mind your own business. 
You'll be taught to just love me and leave it to God. But we must always remember the one to whom we must answer is God, not the world. And that is going to get more difficult in the world as we live today. In the Western world, you know, many are fortunate to be able to express their faith to worship God openly. But there are other ways that persecution will come. And it will come in ways when you want to have to stand up for your faith, when you have to be obedient, when you have to speak up for what is right, for what is sin. When you're asked in your workplace or someplace else about something that you know is wrong and you choose to like, mm, I'm not going to say anything, I'm just going to, no, 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 That is the temptation that we will face because you know that if you, are, if you speak up, there can be consequences. You might be labeled as one who is intolerant. That promotion you are working for might not go to you because you are now, you may be branded. But ultimately, we must remember who it is we serve, who it is we must give an account to. And when we start to live our lives for that audience of one, then we will find victory. Victory in Christ, fulfillment in Christ, even if it might cost us. We are not in the business of changing people's lives. That is the Holy Spirit's business. But we are in the business of being obedient to God's word. And so when God says, go, we go. When God says, speak, we speak. And we leave the results up to him. So don't get caught up in arguments. In things that the Bible says, sometimes foolish arguments that don't encourage or edify the people who listen to them. But stick to the word of God. And once you have been obedient... Leave the results up to him. How do you live your life? Are you aware of God's judgment? Does that inform your life? Does that transform your life? In how you extend judgment to other people? In how you relate to other people? Knowing that the same measure you give is the same measure you receive from Christ. And if you do not know God, if you think, whatever you do is right as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, then you are mistaken. Because we cannot be righteous even by our good deeds alone. But by the work of Christ on the cross, we receive the righteousness of God. And so if you hear God's voice calling to you today, do not harden your heart, but seek him. Answer those questions that are in your mind instead of pushing them away with distractions like it's common in the world today. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, God, that may we be mindful of you. May we be mindful of your judgment towards sin. And may that inspire us, O oh God, to extend love, not like the world loves, but like you love. A love that is willing to be bold, a love that is willing to speak up. And may we do it in grace, may we do it in humility, recognizing that we all are servants of you, our Master. May your word, O oh God, take root in our hearts. May this seed, O oh God, get planted and grow and bear fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Um, we're going to call on the worship team to um, lead us in the last song.